Welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I am a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bienvenue. We've come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story, although I think our responses and what we want from a short story vary, and we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion. Today, we're discussing what is probably my favourite collection of all the ones we've read, and possibly of all the ones I've ever read, which is Pond by Claire Louise Bennett, and I have to thank you for introducing me to it. So tell me, how did you first come across it? Similar to Lucia Berlin's work, which we discussed in episode 10 with our wonderful guest and Berlin expert, Nina Ellis, Claire Louise Bennett's work kept coming at me through grassroots murmurings to people saying, you've got to read this. Bennett's work has met with considerable success, championed by literary magazines such as The Stinging Fly and The White Review. But this word of mouth transmission is perhaps the most glorious tribute to any short fiction writer, readers recognising the writer's work as short story gold and passing on the recommendation to share the gift with others and I've done my best to do likewise. Yeah I think the way we come across short story collections the way they travel is interesting in itself and I guess it's quite different from the novel they're marketed differently to begin with you're less likely to see them prominently displayed in bookshop windows or read in reading groups. Absolutely. Bookshops tend to devote little space to short fiction, which is usually hidden among novels. So if you don't already know what you're looking for, you're not very likely to find short fiction joy. Otherwise, there might be a dedicated shelf, but most often with anthologies rather than the single author collections I prefer. Short fiction used to have a home in newspapers and magazines, but the press has gone into decline and the mainstream publishing industry hasn't really adapted to make space for short fiction. It doesn't seem to know what to do with it. And short fiction is often marketed like a novel or as a themed collection as if to make it more palatable. Publishers are wary, and this reflects in wariness among other stakeholders, such as agents. The demand is there, though. Literary magazines and short fiction competitions go some way to meet it, and the internet is heaving with quality work. Indie publishers such as Confingo, Nightjar, Salt, Comma, do really important work in publishing short fiction, often on a not-for-profit basis. And I should mention the erstwhile Juxta Press, which so beautifully published Bennett's short story Fish Out of Water, which I included in my personal anthology hosted by Jonathan Gibbs, and Fitzcarraldo, which published the edition I have of Pond in Fitzcarraldo's signature royal blue with white font and the logo embossed on the cover and inside thick, creamy paper that gives just the right resistance to the fingertips. Wonderful. That's very different from my edition, which is Penguin, an indicator of a collection finding its way out of a short story niche and into if not the mainstream then a wider market so because I love this short story collection and you do too and because it feels particularly unified as a collection it was hard to pick just one of the stories to talk about I was torn between control knobs to a god unknown and the gloves are off although actually I would have happily discussed almost any of them and you mentioned one that I wouldn't particularly have picked out finishing touch so do you want to start by saying something about what you especially enjoy about this story certainly may I mention that Bennett was among the first names they suggested for small pleasures and when you read her work you were convinced too but so much so that we've been rather putting off discussing yes this is such a great compliment to her work 
To prepare for our podcast, I sat in sunshine on a terrace to reread and felt again this contradictory feeling of wanting to share the pleasure, but also to keep it jealously inside me or for me to remain within the space that Bennett creates to not break the bubble. I loved so many aspects of Finishing Touches and the collection as a whole, but a good place to start might be space. Bennett's story recounts a house party, not so much in terms of what happens, but rather in a freewheeling projections through an author-narrator voice, elaborating the fantasy of her anticipated party. And she fixates on an ottoman which she imagines being sat on, investing non-moments with such rich imaginings that they become real for us. The perspective swoops from the cosmic to the mundane to the most intimate inner space of the self. A quote from Bachelard, Poetics of Space, frames the collection. And when I read Finishing Touches, I thought of the relationship between small and great spaces, the micro-happiness of the lovely picture that the author-narrator presents of someone sat on her ottoman, and the great perspectives that this opens up into the subjectivity presented on the page, and even greater existential questions about who we are, what life is, what reality is. Sometimes the narrator seems trapped in her head, and this ties neatly to another quote that frames the collection, this time by Nietzsche. It is as though a sentimental trait of nature were bemoaning the fact of her fragmentation, her decomposition into separate individuals. At one point, the narrator imagines a guest visiting the upstairs of her house without her and her then rushing up to see what they saw. And this seemed to capture the, the tragedy of the irreconcilable gap between imaginary and so-called real life. Also between our impossible desire to overcome solitude, to share the same space as another. And this is perhaps what we also seek in stories, what we find and cannot find there. So I love being both inside and outside the space that Bennett creates and that she is an exile herself, apparently spending more time in her imagined party than in the party itself. I think that point about the space Bennett creates is so apt because the setting, for instance, is a moot point. The actual location is a remote village in Western Ireland, which is where Bennett went to write these stories in solitude. And yes, there is a sense of exile in them because I think she's English. Therefore, the sense that the location is almost invariably her own mind. Yes, you've put your finger on something that comes through strongly for me to the theme of exile. And yes, the collection is mostly set in rural Ireland, narrated by an English expat author-narrator with a voice that's very similar to Beckett. Isolation comes through strongly in Bennett's work. In Finishing Touch, the narrator admits that she doesn't have the phone number of a woman who she earlier referred to as a friend. And then there are these beautiful still lives that Bennett conjures with her Baroque vocabulary and heightened focus. These still lives often speak terrible solitude or loneliness. And the emigre positioning affords a certain distance also to ask what it is to be, say, English or Irish. But the solitude seems universal in that it's existential rather than purely geographical. There's a sense of rootlessness and dislocation at a subjective level. And I'm sure this speaks to many perhaps especially to short fiction readers and writers. The discipline is so often associated with outsiders, and the genre seems to have something of a fascination with boundaries. It also often seems to accommodate those who have difficulty finding space elsewhere. And this perhaps relates to our earlier discussion on mainstream publishing. Short fiction provides a home for exiles of all sorts. Well, that's a great point. And that sense you mention of heightened focus is what for me is the essence of the virtuosity of this collection and the unique quality that it has. You know, in some ways, I feel that it's kind of groundbreaking, an important collection. 
that and as you say the dislocation sense of exile which is so profound that it's only the heightened focus that counters it the tension between the two as if the setting is not the place itself but the narrator's unique capacity for focus that draws everything together while allowing it to fly apart if that makes any sense at all so many great writers have written in exile many of them Irish like Joyce or Beckett as you say but in this case it's an English woman and the exile is self-imposed rather than political or religious because of censorship for instance but it seems as if she has been derailed or even censored by the expectations of society she's given up a PhD she says of herself that she has no ambition so her qualities are those which are not going to readily find a traditional place in the social world Absolutely. You really capture this sense of dislocation. I think of the wistful lament in the Nietzsche quote that opens the collection. And this perhaps comes through especially in your story choice, Control Knobs. What especially spoke to you in this story, Livy? Well, okay, so this story is about, as far as any of them are about, something apparently trivial, the fact that the cooker isn't working. It reminds me of a story I've mentioned before in an earlier podcast by Virginia Woolf, The Mark on the Wall. And also the fact that Virginia Woolf once said she felt she had nothing to write about and then went on to create great and epic art from that nothing, which kind of prefigures existentialism and the sense that we're each engaged in the act of creating purpose or meaning because there is no one God-given meaning. But at the same time as grappling with the cooker, the narrator tells us about a story she's read about the last woman to survive on Earth who has only a thousand matches left. And we realise that the apparent triviality of the control knobs on the cooker has actually a life-threatening dimension to it and how rapidly we are unravelled by physical circumstances. So I think I'm drawn to this story because I recognise so much in it that grappling with an apparently trivial practicality, so much of life life is about that, dismantling a hoover or fixing a leak. And this week, my battle was, was a hose pipe that wouldn't work. But there are so few stories about the hose pipe that doesn't work. So I do want to talk about, just briefly mention another story, Jack London to build a fire which is an astonishing and wonderful short story in which the focus is entirely on trying to create a fire in the Arctic. But we realise as we become drawn into the detail that this is in order to save this man's life. So it's a life-dependent thing that he's building this fire. And it is brilliantly realised. But also in Bennett's story, I think the the grappling with something basic like an old cooker tells her more tells us more about her circumstances than any traditional description would. I mean, in fact, is there a traditional description anywhere in this collection? Which is in itself interesting given the setting. There would be so much to write about. I think if I'd moved to the far west of Ireland, I would be writing page after boring page about the setting. And Bennett does reference Beckett in one interview I read. She says she's in total agreement with Beckett's opinion that the best possible play is one in which there are no actors, only the text. And this story comes close to that. It tells one story by way of another in a kind of hypertextual link. Does it also draw attention to its own metafictionality 
Great question. I'm interested in ekphrasis, which can be roughly defined as making pictures with words. And academics sometimes distinguish between actual ekphrasis, where an actual artwork is described, and notional ekphrasis, where the work is conjured solely by words. And this is what came up for me when you mentioned this wonderful quote about Beckett's work, where the best play is one where there are no actors, only the text. So I suppose for writers, we're always very interested in what we can do with with text. What this story highlights for me is that all description is to some extent yeah, notional, conjured by a narrativizing. And there are social implications for this in terms of who gets to do the narrativizing, who is left out of the dominant narratives. And there are also existential implications. And Bennett takes the quotidian detail that you mentioned for ancient cookers deteriorating control knobs. And by narrativizing, relates this to a novel, real or imagined, and the tragedy of our solitude. There's no salvation in this, but there is solace. I find wonderful that she presents a kitchen sink drama for one. It couldn't be more tragic, but by her close attention, she gilds the grime. Similarly, the narrator of the real or imagined novel, when faced with her own certain death, carefully counts out the matches that remain to her. And the author-narrator, Bennett's author-narrator, stands on one leg, clipping toenails into the sink but neatly. And there's a sort of revenge on our own mortality and this very close attention, the same as can be found in a still life painting, the revenge of capturing a moment in excruciating and glorious detail. But the tragedy is inexorable. We can't overcome the transience of the moment and our best effort is just a made up picture. As this story illustrates with the author narrator questioning her own telling, exposing the contingency of her narrative, her memory of the story. I love that idea of revenge and solace because I do find something peculiarly comforting about this book, not bleak in case we're making it sound bleak. It's often very funny, for instance. I'm never likely to be on Desert Island Disc, but this is a book I would take with me for a sense of companionship in my existential loneliness. Also, that idea of the contingency of narrative and which narratives survive. In that sense, the whole collection is a questioning of history and narrative and what gets reported or recorded. But also there is that lovely quote from the story. If you are not from a particular place, the history of it will dwell inside you quite differently. And I think that's brilliant. It again says so much about exile and dislocation. In terms of technique, she doesn't use names much, does she? There's almost a refusal of the specificity of naming. So we have a friend, that book, etc. Why is this? And what do you see as the meaning of the last line? Great question. Um, I wouldn't like to have to pin down what the last line means, because it's one of those lines that seems to keep opening out. I thought of Beckett really strongly there. He has a roving sentence from Text for Nothing about moving along a road that is not mine, knowing none, known of none. Like for you, the naming popped out for me too. That section where the author narrator says one needs to be careful with names. She highlights this tussle between writer and reader to fix meaning, with the author naming carefully, knowing that the given name comes with a load of cultural baggage that will help the character to be read as they intend. But they can never control this because each reader brings their unique baggage to a text too, and each one completes the text their own way, with context and knowledge available to them. As an aside, on crafting short fiction, the writer and editor S.J. Bradley, who co-edits a literary magazine called Strix, noted in a recent review of submissions to the magazine that while she had met very few Tabithas in real life, there were a glut of them in submissions to Strix. I suppose we can be quite herd-like, even when opting for unusual word choices. For writers, it can be helpful to keep this in mind. Naming is never neutral. As Bennett says, one needs to be careful. Yes, and... 
apart from the naming, the kind of lack of traditional naming, there is also what you might describe as a lack of traditional plotting. And Bennett says in one interview that traditional plotting doesn't work for her. And certainly there's not much evidence of it in these stories. So if they don't follow a traditional structure, what makes a collection work, do you think? each person would have their own reading but for me there's the almost excessive investment in the moment as if by rendering each aspect embroidering with flourishes of prose we might overcome its transient and there's the creation of micro happinesses that highlight the futility of life but also make a temporary refuge from it and there's this voice which really stands out there are certain recurrent elements of style such as Bennett's shifty pronouns she slips from first person to second or first singular to first plural and the way she worries a thing hedging it all about with equivocations to find the very exact words to describe that particular thing exquisitely she often brings life to a manageable scale producing something small and beautiful that one might hold on to a tiny knife with a bone handle for example in control knobs but even in that moment the prose telescopes out again by highlighting the futility and transience of it all so there's this vertiginous sliding between different scales and inner and outer space what about you what thoughts and feelings for you well, I love that phrase of the vitaginous sliding. That's great. But the language for me too, it's often surprising, beautifully apt, resulting from that investment and focus. Great sentences, no typical sentence structure, although there is often quite a lot of listing. But the sentences are very varied, often long, often begin with the physical and move swiftly to the abstract or metaphysical via an intense interrogation of the small object or act. And there's a wonderful range of registers, really, in the language. And again, in an interview, Bennett does talk about writing as a process of reasserting the value of sensory engagement, a personal embodied experience, which helps her to exit the theoretical realm. It revitalises her and her surroundings. She talks about listing objects that are around her at this moment in order to allow the physical world to bloom back into focus. And your phrase, just to mention it again, that vertiginous sliding between different scales and inner and outer space, that captures her style really well. It's phenomenally impressive, but actually I don't think that's the reason I love it. It's easier to talk about the things that you're impressed with rather than the things that you love, I think. And this collection has redefined for me what I thought could be done with a short story collection, which is why I, I consider it to be great. But I think... The reason I love it is partly because of its playfulness and warmth and the non-moments and micro-happinesses you mentioned, where we dwell on the arrangements of pears in a fruit bowl or whether bananas and oatcakes work as a substitute for porridge, the exact descriptions of nail varnish or the dimensions of a windowsill as much as we do on the nature of being. Both aspects of these stories are essential to one another. And to quote Bennett herself, she once said, I prefer Calvino's phrase. It's very Calvino, isn't it? Calvino reminds us that there are many other things in the world, that there are stones and cows and gates and comets and bananas and dog turds and blankets left out in the rain. Well, yes, there are. Maybe there are more of those things than there are of drama and dramatic plots. I think in the end, I was captivated by this collection. I think I had to leave all my expectations behind and allow the writing to carry me along. And there was something peaceful in that, in surrendering my expectations and going with the flow. I would happily read it again. 
over and over. And I'm really so glad you introduced me to it and that we're able to include it in our series about greatness in the short story form. Yeah, I've loved hearing your thoughts and insights as ever. And I especially love this distinction you make between stories that impress us and the stories that we love. Yes. And and what a tribute to somebody's writing, say that it's found a place in our emotional land. Yes, in our hearts, really. In our hearts, in our hearts, exactly. So I do hope you'll go and read this collection. It is phenomenal. And thank you for listening to this Small Pleasures podcast. Do keep your eyes and ears open for our next. Watch this space. We have many great short stories to cover. Until then, goodbye from me and from Sonia. A très bientôt.